Welcome, everyone. It's nice to see some familiar faces. Um, I decided to get a little ambitious with this lecture. I typically speak about issues that I've thought about for years at a time and developed and spoken about in many different contexts, but um, I wasn't a student of Rebbezak. I met him once or twice, but posthumously he shaped my life and he's broadened my horizons. And I'm still processing. This is a share that I'm still processing. I'm still coming to terms. I have deep regrets that I wasn't able to interact with him more. Please, uh, there are sheets. I think there are sheets somewhere. If someone just helps me with the sheets. So I, I wanted to try to take a bird's eye view on how Rabbi Sachs and his writings have affected me over the last two years and the voice I believe he restored. At Har Sinai, HaKadosh Baruch Hu assigned us with a global mission to stand for him in this world to be as source number one, and I'll cite loosely from the sources, and I'd like to allow, I'd like to allow Rabbi Sachs to talk to us through his writings, so there are some excerpts. We're a nation of priests, we have a global mission, we're not just parochial, but we're universal. We have to teach the world the value of a life of monotheism and moral code. And for thousands of years, or for certainly for 1,300 years, the second phase of history was the golden era of universalism in which we enjoyed sovereignty, monarchy, land, and international influence. It began source number two, when Moshe was about to dispatch them into the land. Moshe translates the Torah into 70 languages. Be'er Moshe is a Torah zel, source number three, Meshiv and Lashon. If there are 70 languages, there are meant to be 70 different cultural applications, or as I say, we model 613 to demonstrate the dignity of seven. We model, thank you, we model 613 to demonstrate the dignity of seven. And throughout the first base on Mikdash, we're actively involved in spreading the gospel. People visited this fabled, legendary city of Jerusalem to discover its temple and to inquire about its God. So when Hiram, who lives in Tyre, who's the emperor of Tyre, now modern-day Lebanon, hears about this great construction project of the house of God, he's literally falling over himself to contribute and to participate. Source number four, verse number five, he sends his material and his workers, but it's more of a spiritual journey. Shlomo invites Chiram. Chiram hears, receives his invitation. Source number three, but this isn't a construction project. Vayamar Barach Hashem Hayom. Sounds like a Rosh Hashiva. Barach Hashem Hayom Eshenasan Ledavid Ben Chacham Alam HaRafazeh. Queen Sheba, Malchus Sheva, visits from somewhere in the African continent. She's curious about this people. She's curious about their Mikdash. And when she finally discovers Shlomo and our monarchy and this temple of God on the city of religion, what does she say? Source number six, Yehi Hashem Elokecha Barach. These are Gentiles praising Hashem, seeing God through the prism of Jewish experience. Or as Shlomo HaMelech dreamed of when he built the Beis HaMikdash, this is from Yeshaya, but when Shlomo inaugurated the Beis HaMikdash, he envisions it as an international house of prayer, canonized to the phrase which is familiar to us from Yeshaya, Ki Beisi Beis Tfilei Yikarei Lechal and although our universalist tradition reached its apex in the first temple, even in the second temple, there were interactions, influence, we still occupied the global stage. So the second base of Mikdash, unlike the first base of Mikdash, isn't built with the same fanfare. 
but it's still dispatched, source number seven, Bishnas Achas Likarish, Melech Paras, the Persian emperor. He authorizes the reconstruction. He delivers goods and materials similar to his predecessor, Chira. All this ground to a halt about 1900 years ago. 1900 years ago, we were cast aside to the margins of history. 1900 years ago, we lost our stage. 1900 years ago, as punishment for repeated betrayals, the world went dark. And we lost that voice. And Judaism contracted. The good news is that Torah is so panoramic and so eternal. Please make sure that some of the people have seats. Maybe some of the younger people can move over a little bit. It's so panoramic and so sweeping that it fills the void. Because Torah is everything. And Torah can serve as everything. But there was a contraction. I'll read a Gemara in Brachos, which people of a less redemptive orientation read one way. Source number nine. Look at what we've survived. Look at what we've built. Look at the robust community and the sustainable Jewish world we've built just out of this room, just out of the ideas. We became a people of ideas through that great contraction. But we lost that voice because we occupied the margins of society because we were victimized by history because we've been murdered. So the prospect that the Jews had a message for the broader world was unfathomable, was laughable. We're busy defending ourselves against history. How can we affect history? And then history shifted. And then history shifted. In 1948, it shifted. And we don't have a template for this new period because it's fresh. Because we haven't lived through this before. I have a template for Sippus. I have a template for Pesach. I know how to navigate those experiences. Open the books. We don't have a template for this new period. And so much is new. And so many Jews are struggling to adjust to the new paradigms. What does it mean to participate in democracy after years and years of being on the run from arbitrary monarchies who are out to subvert us and torture us? So many Jews don't understand and appreciate the integrity of democracy. So so many of us are shifting. So many Jews who are expert in the books behind you, they don't have the lens to process redemption. It's a different lens. I've worn two different lenses. One lens is a rational lens to process halacha and Torah. One lens is a redemptive lens to process the shifts of history. And just because you possess one, doesn't mean you excel at the other. But we lost that universalist voice. And Rabbi Sachs restored that voice for us. He reminded us that our story, and we're over a little bit, that our story, sure, of course, we're all set. Nice to meet you. It's all, it's all good. Okay. We'll come, come halfway. What's, what's your name? Nice to meet you. He reminded us that our story is their story. That the Jewish story impacts civilization. Or, and I tried to quote some of his favorite authors, that's why there's an epilogue, I won't quote all of his quotes, but he specifically enjoyed Gentiles who captured the Jewish story in his universalist tones. So, for example, as Paul Johnson writes in the History of the Jews, Source 15, no people has ever insisted more firmly than the Jews that history has a purpose and humanity a destiny. At a very early stage of their collective existence, they believed they had detected a divine scheme for the human race. 
The Jewish vision became the prototype for many similar grand designs for humanity. The Jews, therefore, stand right at the center of the perennial attempt to give human life the dignity of a purpose. Or, as he quotes from Barbara Tuckman, a modern novelist, not a novelist, excuse me, starring, viewing this strange and singular history, one cannot escape the impression that it must contain some special significance, the Jewish history, for the history of mankind. Some way, whether one believes in divine providence or inscrutable circumstance, the Jews have been singled out to carry the tale of human life. Carry the tale of human life, the dignity of a life or purpose. And Rabbi Sachs restored that voice to us. Or in his own words, source number 14, I would recommend the Haggadah as a starter for those who are trying to penetrate his thought. I think it's a nice entree point. In one of his nuggets in the Haggadah, one of his essays, source 14, religious thought has not fully caught up with this development. Modernity confronted Jews as a series of traumatic onslaughts. We were overwhelmed by modernity. First, the assimilatory demands of European emancipation, the rising tide of racial anti-Semitism, the nightmare of the Holocaust, and finally the challenge of forging a new nation in Israel under pressures internal and external that might have easily defeated a less hardy people. Distress, powerful ideas, distress inhibits prophecy because it makes people turn in on themselves rather than outward to the world and to God. So that is the voice he restored. Come, come on in, come on in, so. Or Hamish, come on in. No, don't be sorry, it's all good. Oh, more source sheets. Thank you, Akira, for all of your work. Are there more source sheets? Okay, here's some more source sheets. We'll share, we'll share, we'll share. Edgeware people, we share. Edgeware knows how to share. Have a learning section for the Edgeware shares. What I'd like to do today is to drill a little bit more down into the details. He restored our voice. He reminded us that our story is their story. I think he tried to define Jewish identity, inverting it from victimhood to broadcasting. If you read the book Future Tense, we shouldn't define ourselves by anti-Semitism. We shouldn't define ourselves that we're hated. We should define ourselves in proudful terms that we have a message for humanity. But he didn't just remind us of that voice. He helped us crystallize areas of modernity that we continue to shape. When you, if you were to ask me this question, before I started reading Rabbi Sachs, I would have told you our message is monotheism. Our message is morality. But how does that affect the modern world of democracy and free economics and mass media and identity politics? And I don't know. Morality and monotheism can feel a bit distant. It works in this room. But how does it operate when I'm participating in society building, when I'm on the internet, when I'm voting in the booth, when I'm processing this maddening world, he didn't just describe our voice, he updated it. He modernized it. How did our message not just affect the moral spirit of humanity and the religious tone? How did it shape modern democracy? How did it shape modern morality? So he applied it and modernized it. And when you modernize something, you make it more relevant. It sticks. It's part of your experience rather than corded off in some compartmentalized space that we call religion. He adhered it to reality. And also, he didn't just identify the areas in which our story impacted the modern world, but he also was a social critic. He wasn't just an applicator. He was a critical, criticalized social commentator. He was worried about some of the regression of morality and the dignity of humankind, and he identified parts of power that could stem this time. 
And I want to talk about four areas that I think he translated universalist Jewish identity from general vagaries, monotheism and morality, of course they're important, but vagary the principle, the principles that are just too monumental to trickle down to details. And he identified many areas, I've chosen four, that the Torah's message is either responsible for the shape of modern society or can help society prevent erosion. Number one, and these are phrases for anyone who's read him that may sound familiar. I'm trying to use his language. Again, this is still a in process. I'm still processing here. Thanks for bringing the share. and <laughs> where I'd be. Number one, what he calls the politics of freedom. Number two, relationships in religion and in politics. Number three, religion is the foundation of morality. Number four, religion as a prevention of the effasure of human dignity, as a restorer of human dignity. Those are the four topics I'd like to discuss in our extensive time for this lecture. <laughs> but as I said, I'm just learning this as well. The politics of freedom. Rabbi Sachs viewed the liberation or the episode of the Exodus not just as liberation of slaves from servitude. He viewed it as a paradigm shift. In the ancient world, the ancient world was frightening. Human beings felt vulnerable. They craved order. They craved stability. Power would preserve order. Equality would lead to chaos. So they worshipped power, and they were willing to vest power in the hands of the few who could enforce the order that was so elusive in a wild, violent, and discombobulating world. The notion that the gods of antiquity would favor the weak or the vulnerable was absurd. Gods favored their representatives on earth who controlled and preserved the world that they toyed with as a plaything. And the liberation from Egypt, from Mitzrayim, was a paradigm shift. It didn't come to canonize power, but to subvert it. Not to preserve demagogues, but to taunt them. And that's why the story of the Exodus is not just a liberation. Welcome, welcome. Not just a liberation. We can just maybe help with some of the chairs. Maybe we'll ask some of the younger people to migrate over. Okay. This is Mizrach. Okay. You're welcome. Come on in. Come on in. It's all good. Come on, come all. Okay. This is Rabbi Sachs calling us in. So um, let's wait a moment until everyone takes a seat. If the ancient religions canonized power, then the Pesach Mitzrayim demythologized it and secularized it and subverted it. And this story doesn't just characterize Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but it categorizes Avraham's migration from Orkastin, from the tyranny and the discrimination that he faced to a land of equality, to a land of egalitarianism. It characterizes Migdal Bavel, the, the Tower of Bavel. I'm not so sure I see it, but... It characterizes the role of the prophets who didn't support monarchy but challenged it, critiqued power. So Mitzrayim is a paradigm shift from what we could call the politics of order, my word, into the politics of right and morality and the subversion of power. And that's why throughout the Tanakh there's such a disdain for self-appointed demigods, whether it's Paro or Nebuchadnezzar, who casts himself as the supreme ruler of humanity and within a year and a half is raving mad through the forest, half man, half animal. 
Or, as Rabbi Sachs says, and again, I'm trying to bring him into this room as best I can. As Rabbi Sachs writes, source number 16, Pesach is an intensely political festival. If you're interested, I wrote an article a few months ago critiquing this. I'm not here to critique it. I don't see it this way. I see it partially this way. I see it as a transcendent holiday of Jewish identity and Jewish covenant with Hashem. But this is part that he casts, and I believe it's a very resonant part of Pesach. It is an intensely political festival. It is about the central Jewish project, constructing a society radically unlike any that had ever existed before and most that have come into being since. It poses a fundamental question. Can we make on earth a social order based not on transactional transactions in power, but on respect for the human person? Maybe some typos here, I apologize. That is the first modernization of the universal voice. How did we affect democracy? Our story unleashed a new paradigm of equality, of demythologizing power, of subverting the established order in favor of equity and moral fairness. There's a great irony to see in modern democracy, which is essentially secular movement, religious roots. There's something deeply ironic in tracing modern democracy to its ancient biblical roots, but of course, both in this country and in America, the founding fathers were deeply sensitive to the biblical narrative in ways and I'll try to get to later, that the French and the Russians were not. There's some fascinating distinctions between the American Revolution and the British Revolution, as opposed to the French and the Russian Revolutions, which, of course, turned into themselves. So that's the first area of the modern world that Rabbi Sachs tethered to the Jewish story. Rather than speaking in generalities, he pinpointed particular aspects of our experience and traced them back to biblical and religious roots. Number two is the role of relationships. We believe that Bereshus is a book of theology, Genesis. If you look more carefully, it's really a book of relationships. There's very little theology overtly discussed in Sefer Bereshus. A lot of sibling rivalry, a lot of marital strife, a lot of parenting and multi-generational parenting. So Bereshus prioritizes the personal over the political. Before we build a nation, before we build a religion, we build a family of relationships which will serve, as I'll describe in a moment, as the model for religion and ultimately the model for democratic society. And that same prioritization of personal over political is echoed in Sefer Rus, which is a mini Sefer Bereshus, because it's paving the way to Jewish dynasty. It's paving the way to the political order. Rus's grandson will be David, will launch that grand era we spoke of earlier. But there are no politics in Russia. There's almost an, an allergy to politics. There's a political subversion in Russia. But it's all about relationships, death, widowhood, family, commitment, loyalty. So those two sagas, those two narratives, convey the very same paradigm. The primacy of the personal over the political. And in particular, marriage. Because marriage is a covenant of loyalty, mutual commitment. It redeems humanity from its solitude. And marriage in particular serves as the model for our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Although he's all-powerful, although he's almighty, you wouldn't know it from reading Tanakh, in particular his relationship with us. There are moments he has to intercede in history and punish Egypt and bring power to his heels. 
But throughout the Torah, our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu is a duet, and we're trying to find our cadence, we're trying to find our rhythm, and we betray and he casts us aside, and we're ready and he forgives us. And, and in Shir Hashir, in this marital metaphor, he writes, Ani dodi vidodili. So the reason that religion or nation building is delayed until relationships are presented is because relationships will serve as the model and the template for religious thought and our religious conception of a Kaddish Baruch Gracious, you think it's theological. You think you'd be exposed to a clash between a paganist culture and a monotheistic culture. But yet what we really are witness to is a clash between marital loyalty and freewheeling sexual promiscuity. And there's an implicit assumption that random multiple gods leads to random multiple women or vice versa. And the randomness and the multiplicity is bilateral. And loyalty to one expressed in monogamy is loyalty to one expressed in monotheism. And that's the drama of gracious. It's a religious drama cast in marital relational terms. And that is not just the basis for theology, but it should serve as the basis for what he refers to as covenantal politics. For the construction of a society, which isn't based on contractual agreements, what can I state you for me? How can I contribute to the state? What are my rights? What are my responsibilities? But mutual decisions made by people united through common agenda, common interests, lovingly surrendering some of their own freedom and autonomy for the greater good, to live in union with other people rather than in solitude of self. And that is the, that is the flow from relationships of, between human beings, interacting with your relationships, to relationships of religion, to relationships within society. That's the second issue. The ability to trace our will. Ideally, our system, and this, of course, is fading. We're losing covenantal politics or covenantal societies because we've lost our narrative. What is our narrative? A narrative can't be capitalistic. A narrative can't be we all want the next iPhone. A narrative can't even be we all want freedom, especially after freedom has been won. There has to be some higher calling that unites us, one common story. What is our story? As Jews, we share a story across the continents. So we're united in our story. We all deeply identify, and those are the gossamer strands that unite us across the continents. But unfortunately, in our own societies, we've lost narratives. When you lose narrative, you lose covenantal politics or covenantal societies, and it just degrades into transactions. I'll pay my taxes, but I need to receive in exchange vaccination or services or rights or protection. And once you contract politics, you're essentially turning society into a market-driven experience of rights and, and, and kickbacks. So that's the second area that Rabbi Sachs modernized. Politics of freedom and relational religion, or what he called covenantal religion, and covenantal society. The third area, which um, comes up with an exceptional term. He, he had a fascinating his term sometimes, which is so succinct and so precise. He has a term called moral literacy. Moral literacy. So you can be literate in the history of the last 400 years, but moral literacy is to trace the evolution of morality over the last 400 years, to be able to be literate in the advent and the development of moral thought. And he writes about this. I'm just going to take my jacket off. It's a little, uh, it's a little warm in here. He writes about in that book, Morality, which is, uh, again, uh, there's a lot of overlap in his books. There's a lot of overlap in his thought. 
but it's a highly recommended book, and he senses the aggression of morality. And he senses that religion should serve, as he calls it, as a moral scaffolding of morality. It should serve as a as a um, as a barrier to prevent moral decline. It should serve as a foundation, a moral foundation. And how does religion provide that foundation or that scaffolding? Because it establishes a relationship of I and thou. If covenant extends man beyond himself, beyond his egotistical self, the egotistical solitude of self, into a relationship of we versus I, which is the phrase that controls that first, that, that second issue of covenantal politics and covenantal society, morality should draw a person from I into thou, into a higher being with higher moral wisdom. And that wisdom establishes both image. Ultimately, we want to be moral not because of divine law, but because of divine image. We shouldn't be driven by regulation, we should be driven by emulation. Second of all, of course, divine law, we submit it as well. And then, of course, finally, because of divine scrutiny. Encourages the willingness and the ability to act in private when no one's watching. But for a Jew, there never is a moment when no one's watching. So divine image, divine law, and divine scrutiny create that moral scaffolding to prevent the moral experience from disintegrating into... We don't inhabit an immoral world. People aren't beheading one another. People aren't murdering and butchering one another. There is some aspect of the world, but by and large, we live in a civil world. He is able to detect the aphasia of moral values at the margins in very subtle ways. Moral relativism. The absence of any absolute value system, which every perspective has to be morally validated. Because there's no fixed north. There's no divine law. There's no divine absolute. Or multiculturalism, where there are choices but no values. Every, I was just in the Netherlands a few weeks ago, and they took pride in the 60s about creating a multicultural society. It's a carnival. And once you create that carnival of culture, you lose identity. Because culture is the bond that allows us to create adherent or adhesive identity. What do we stand for? What are our common practices? What are our common beliefs? How do you create a cultural identity without being exclusionary and bigoted and racist? But without culture, there's no identity. Without identity, we fall into cheap identity politics, where identity is determined by who we vote for, the sports team we follow, which is, of course, gross and infantile identity. You're not who you vote for. You're not left or right. You don't check boxes based on which political party you vote for. You build identity. And how do you build identity? When identity anchors have been stripped, and it becomes a carnival of multicultural ideas. The politicalization of morality. Morality is expressed in quiet acts of compassion, selflessness, kindness. It isn't expressed in global moral concerns, which may be important on their own right, but don't justify or don't create moral integrity. You could be obsessed with planetary conservation, which is an important agenda. And it sounds moral, but it's really political and it's global. And it can't substitute for day-to-day moral sensibility and day-to-day moral interaction. And how often have we found great moral crusaders whose lives don't necessarily reflect that moral code? So without these scaffolding, without these, the, the, these foundations, morality starts to slip into that vague, incohate unknown. And religion is meant to provide I and thou. Religion is meant to provide absolutes. So number one, Politics of freedom. 
how did Torah, how did Yitzhak Mitzrayim, how does HaKadosh Baruch Hu's message, the Parshish Bahar, I'm already on Bechut but you're still in Bahar. Parshish Bahar, the ideal society of equitable economic distribution, releasing of death, freeing of slaves, care for the other, Bahar, Mishpatim, Parshish Kedoshim, how does that create not just moral sensitivity, but healthy democracy? I never connected the two. I was never able to tether the two. I had a vague notion. But he traces morality into idealized democracy. How does, how does religion provide a model for my relationship, excuse me, relationship, a model of my relationship with the Kaddish Baruch and in potential for the ideal society of mutually waived rights for the common good, for the common wealth? How does religion bolster morality, preventing it from slip-sliding into the chaos and the anarchy of today's moral swirl? The final issue, which to me is probably the most riveting because it's the most abstract. We believe that we're created unique. We are the apex, excuse me. We are the apex of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world. We were entrusted with both privilege and stewardship Privilege to marshal the force of this world, but stewardship and custodial responsibility to preserve it. Leovda or Lashamra. Salam Elohim. Unlike Christianity and its doctrine of original sin, we are born pure and upright, noble and virtuous. We're at the center of Hashem's universe. Somehow, society took a wrong turn over the last 400 years. At the height of the Renaissance, 16th century, the height of man's dignity, the central role he occupies in the universe. Something happened. How did it all fall apart? Or, as Nietzsche, who he thought, I always come across these authors who have a sense of their times. I hear that in Rabbi Sachs. I enjoy reading Kafka because he sensed interwar Europe. He sensed the looming clouds. He sensed the storm. He had a... People have a prophetic, and I'll quote this a little bit, a prophetic sense of where society is spiraling towards. So he believed Nietzsche was able to appreciate the horrors that awaited, even though he was an agent of those horrors, as an irony. So he quotes Nietzsche, Source 17. Very harrowing images. Has not man's self-deprecation, his will to self-deprecation, been unstoppably on the increase? Namely, we self-deprecate, we diminish our stature since Copernicus. Gone, alas, is his faith in his dignity, uniqueness, irreplaceableness in the rank of ordering of beings. He has become an animal. Man, who in his earlier faiths was almost God, seems to have been on a downward path, rolling faster and faster away from the center into nothingness, into piercing sensation of his nothingness. How did we fall from the masterpiece of Hashem's world into nothingness? It is an act that unfolds in many scenes. First, Copernicus decentralized space. We believe we lived at the center of the universe. We occupied pole position. The world revolved around human habitat. Until it didn't. And we were just occupying a small fleck of cosmic dust. Itself perched in some far-off galaxy. So we're no longer the central tenant of Hashem's universe. And then the discovery of fossils, 
And it wasn't just space that was destabilized, but time was destabilized. Where we thought we could chart history, and Jews live history, and there's an inception to history, and there's a conclusion to history, and history is a process, and that process is called redemption, and we occupy a particular place in history. What happens when history is flexed from 5,700 years to 5 billion years? We lose a sense of time. We're just randomly placed into some large narrative that has absolutely no bearing on human identity or human narrative. Who can process 5 billion years? I can process 5,000 years. I can process 5 billion years. And then, the major shift into a world of determinism. Spinoza. We occupy a world of physics. The world of physics is cold and unfeeling. And it's action and reaction. And it's driven by necessity. And at that point, we lose our freedom. We don't lose our consciousness. We know that we are victims of necessity. But we lose our freedom because we're just part of the physical world. And we have to, we just react to circumstances rather than alter our identity or alter our world. So Copernicus destabilizes and decentralizes space. Discovery of fossils decentralizes time. Spinoza emasculates freedom of choice. And that unleashes a torrent of determinism. Searching for, well, if we don't control our own fate, what does control our fate? So Marx decides that our fate is determined in the factory. We no longer sit on a divine throne, we live in a dark, gloomy factory. And class warfare. And frictions between management and labor. That's what really determines the course of humanity, the course of history. Here's the pawn in some larger class warfare face-off. And then Darwin convinced us that we're not the source, we're just the branch of some larger genealogical evolutionary tree. And you know what? Not only are we occupying a branch, we happen to be sharing that branch with primates. You don't even have our own branch. If you don't have our own branch, who are we? And is there dignity to human identity? Is there something unique or distinctive to being a human being? And we just belong to some larger graph of evolutionary... And that evolutionary process isn't driven by any decision or cognitive choice. It's driven by some Ferris wheel of larger forces, survival of the fittest, and selection... And then Freud took us on a tour of the subterranean subconscious. And believe me, it wasn't pretty. And on that tour, we discovered that we love our mothers and hate our fathers. And we're helpless, helpless to oppose either of those forces. And here is our world in which we've lost all dignity of humanity. And why is that important? The piercing sensation into nothingness that Nietzsche described. Because without human dignity, you don't believe in yourself and your potential. There is something called, and I know most of you probably have never heard of this unless you're under 30, but it is a raging, raging epidemic, psychological epidemic, called imposter syndrome. Am I really... Because without identity, there's no reality. Without reality, there's no reality check. So we lose sense of potential freedom. I, was, I remember speaking to a bunch of Israeli students a couple of years ago about vision and growth and affecting the world and changing and boy, race and Rebbe. And we don't feel that. I said, oh my goodness, tell me why. I feel trapped in a world without human voice and human impact. Because without dignity, we don't trust other people. Dignity leads to trust. I see a human being created by the grace of Hashem. 
I'm a humanist. I trust your virtue. I trust your behavior and your relationship and your communication. And when that dignity vanishes, trust fizzles. And without trust, of course, the bonds of society, the bonds of family, the bonds of relationship begin to fissure. The Shiva crisis is essentially a trust crisis of trust. To enter into a relationship and trust the other person that they will protect your emotional well-being, and it may succeed or it may not, but unfortunately we spend most of our time looking at screens, and screens don't build trust. And something else, screens don't build is multidimensionality. So we see people two-dimensional, because that's all we look at. And of course, without the dignity of the human condition, people become objectified. Because if you're a person, built in the image of Hashem, I have to treat you with that respect. Once you lose that dignity, you're a means to an end. And objectification leads to manipulation, and very quickly leads to violence. And that's how Nietzsche, Darwin, Spinoza, Marx create the horrors of the 20th century. They weren't responsible, of course, directly, but they're quoted early and often. Early and often in the harvest, because human beings could be herded like cattle and executed like moths. Those are the four areas that Rabbi Sachs modernized. These are four areas that religion is meant to inspire. There's a religion is meant to reinforce, prevent the backslide. And this is, to be quite honest, revolutionary to me and broadening to my mind. Like I said before, is moral literacy, to be able to look back and see trends evolving, to see how people viewed us in our story. And in the two minutes that I have remaining, it's all right, it's all good. Modernity reminds us of its haunting, irrepressible presence. Can it escape the chanting echo of man? Okay, it reverberates within our conscience. Either way, in the one minute I have remaining until I have to start the next year, and you're all welcome to stay for the next year. You have to stay for the next year. Um, and he did this by capturing our universalist voice. But sometimes Jews are so universalist in their outlook that their national identity becomes attenuated. And he was such an ardent supporter of Israel. And such an ardent opponent. <laughs> Okay, I don't listen to anyone. <laughs> Dignity, schmignity. Such an ardent opponent of anti-Semitism. Such a spokesman for Jewish identity. And to me, if I climb down from my perch, assessing of my sex, this is my message to you. This ability to merge universalist identity with national Jewish identity, to be able to appreciate our role for the broader world, but still our unique calling in this room, it is tearing people apart, the inability to fuse the two. Just think of the Jews you know. Some Jews are so universalist, so broad, that their ability to identify with pride, their selection, the Yam HaNivchar, Vanimatan Hashem Elokeichem, to stand in front of a Kodesh Baruch in prayer, is in rapid decline. And sadly, some people who are so parochial, and it's not their fault, 1900 years of victimhood, 1900 years they've lost the voice, People just don't get it. It'll take, uh, it'll take a few generations to be able to recover that presence. We've been on the run. We've been fugitives in history. But this room they excel at. But they haven't realized that we played that role. This is our, this is our legacy. This is our heritage. So here's my challenge to you. 
You've just spent 48 hours living as a proud Jew. Shabbos and Mizrahi and inspiration. Be the same person tomorrow at work that you were today. Learn to bridge the two. Don't be one person on the weekend or one person at work. Show your Jewish identity at work with pride, not pugnaciousness. With pride, not condescension. Because you stand for Hashem in a humble way, but a proud way. When you're in this room, don't forget that the rest of the four billion people who inhabit this earth are not just props on some grand cosmic stage, but that they matter. And sadly, even those who hate us, they're not our enemies. They're our future audiences. Because one day the world will change. The world is still broken. And I feel it more than anyone in this room. Because I'm out to land in a broken narrative. Because I'm a proud settler, and I'm a proud humanist. And I believe that advancing human society demands that I live where I live, but I also respect the rights of the people that live near me. And just on the way to the airport, as I was driving to the airport a few nights ago, I did what I always do. I get to a traffic circle, and I give a Palestinian the right of way. Because I see the dignity that's stripped from them at roadblocks. And roadblocks are absolutely necessary to ferret out violent murderers, potential murderers. But 99% of them are just upstanding citizens like everyone in this room. When I went through a roadblock and they have to get out and have their trunks searched and their clothing felt, I suffer. The absence of human dignity. And if one second I can restore some of that dignity, it's worth me arriving because I breeze through roadblocks. So I'm living a broken narrative. But I believe that the two one day will be reconciled. One day the world will be repaired. But don't give up either of those narratives. Take a break now. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.